Jesus our Lord. The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Come, let us bow down to the Lord, our maker. Let us pray. Father, you sent your word to bring us truth and your spirit to make us holy. Through the work of your trinity, we come to know the mystery of your life. Help us to worship you, one God and three persons, by proclaiming and living our faith in you. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 115, All Creatures of Our God and King.
God the Father forgives us in Jesus Christ and heals us by the Holy Spirit. Let us therefore put away all anger and bitterness, all slander and malice, and confess our sins to God, our Redeemer. Let us pray. Almighty God, we confess that we have sinned against you and have done evil in your sight. We have transgressed your law and neglected your word. Forgive us our sins, O Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who was put to death for our trespasses. Give us the grace and power we need to put away all hurtful things. Deliver us from the bondage of sin. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk from this day forward in your holy ways. For we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. People of Christ, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we are saved by his life. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Holy ones in Christ, we have been taught to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, and to be transformed by the renewal of our minds that we may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, and to keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So then, we are to submit our minds to God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And that's easy to say, but we need to remember what that means. It means we're submitting all of our thoughts, our beliefs, the way we see the world. We are submitting, we are stating our willingness to submit those things to God's revelation that has been given to us. Now, you can't do that. (laughs) So I'm giving you a call to obedience that you can't do. However, the Holy Spirit's at work with you so that that's how we can do that. That's how, with God's work within us, that we can have our perceptions and mind, uh, the way we see things, our own personal ideas about reality and life and how everything should be. We can have all those things subjected to God because he works in us by his Holy Spirit. So we are not to um, just simply go along with whatever the culture is doing, and that's automatic, I would say, for um, everyone in a culture. It's just we all are part of that culture and we see everything according to it. Now there's not just one way of seeing things. There are different groups with different ways of, of uh, trying to interpret reality and saying what's right and what's wrong. But we need to understand that those are ideas and, and oftentimes are being used for political purposes. They're being used by groups that want to achieve something with us and push their agenda and push their purposes through. And we've got to be careful about that. And one of the things I've been reflecting on um, lately, and I think it fits with this call to obedience, is that Christians, we have our own way of seeing things. We have our own perspective given to us by God. Now, we certainly want to um, be able to explain that, and we use certain things from our culture to help 
articulate that for people. But we need to understand that there might be this way of viewing things. If, if we made it political, we might have the Democratic view, the Republican view, the Libertarian view, all these different views of what things should be. But Christians have their own. And we should always be careful about trying to just blend it in with another one or take, take some other view and try to uh, you know, reinterpret Christianity according to it. We need to realize we have something given to us and we need to understand life according to that and bear witness to it and not just get caught up in all of the hubbub going on today. Um, and what we have is something that can bring about peace and justice and all of that according to Jesus Christ. And so we want to be sure that we're bearing witness to that and not just repeating what everyone else is saying that's not based on Jesus Christ. Well, this is God's God's will for us, and we should take it to heart and follow after um, what the Scripture says about submitting our hearts, will, mind, soul, everything to Jesus Christ. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ. Let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 107, Praise Ye the Father. pray for the many things in the church and in this world that are going on today. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your Son. You've revealed that you are the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. Help us to love Jesus and enable us to follow him, to cling to his words and hear and, and understand what he has revealed of 
of you, the one God, and to be grateful forever for his gracious sufferings and death and his triumphant resurrection, his glorious ascension, all of these things whereby you have accomplished our eternal salvation. Our merciful Savior, remember your holy church throughout this world. Unite all who profess and call themselves Christians in the bond of a holy faith as one body. We pray that there would be ecumenical conversation between the different churches seeking unity, but not at the expense of true doctrine and good Christian living. Replenish your people with the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may be witnesses of Christ the Lord, proclaiming him in word and deed. And having been kept by him to the end, may we be in full communion with you and with one another in your eternal and glorious kingdom. Here are brothers, here are prayers for our brothers and sisters in other churches, O Lord. For those in anguish, we pray, who have no comfort of body and soul, those who have little little to eat, who wake up every day in fear, may we show them Christ our Savior, who gives us new life and is our Lord. And may we show them, show this to them by comforting them and helping them. By your Spirit, make the proclamation of the gospel powerful with our mission workers. We pray for Octavius Delphils and Ben Hop in Haiti and Ben Westerveld in Quebec and their families. Bless them to be busy in the work Christ has given us to do for the world. May they have the courage of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. And we pray for the Christians in those lands, in Canada, in Haiti, in the other Caribbean island countries. We pray that the gospel would be well preached and taught in these places, and there would be a freedom there, um, and that you would hold down and keep back um, the oppression that can so easily happen in, in a nation. We pray you would hear our prayers now for the proclamation of the gospel in this world. We ask that you would bring an end to the war in Ukraine and that the violence in our own cities would be stopped. Keep safe the churches in the Middle East. Do not let them be reduced to nothing but that the church would continue to have a good presence and witness to Christ, even in dangerous places and hostile places. We pray for peace that comes from good order and a just government. We also pray for the freedom to speak of our faith in this society. Give us discernment, O Lord, between propaganda, speculation, and reality of of what Christ has done for us. Hear our prayers. Look with favor upon the homes of your people. We pray you would preserve the order of the family so that fathers and mothers together raise their children, defend them against evil, supply all their needs according to the riches of your grace, and make these homes places of the peace and love and joy of Christ. Hear our prayers for mothers and fathers.
Holy Father, build up Providence Church and the OPC with your omnipotent grace. Bless us with the power of the Spirit to be busy as Christ's servants in this world. To proclaim in word and deed that the Savior of the world is the Lord of all of life. And we ask that you would come to our aid here in this church, among our members and among our friends, to those in need, those who are poor and have poor health, those who are frail or recuperating. We pray for Barb and Jack, Barbara and Jack, for Terry, Eduardo, for Jeff and Fawn, for our friends Scott and Becky, Mrs. Mesner, Karen, Angie, Paul, Kathy, Tom, Phil, Bill, Chris Barker, and others we name to you in silence. Look with compassion upon the sorrows of your servants for whom our prayers are offered. We pray that they would receive good medical care and that you would hold them up if, if they're reaching, coming to the end of their days. Remember them, O Lord, in your mercy. Nourish their souls with patience and comfort them with a sense of your goodness. Lift up your favor upon them and give them peace. Through Jesus Christ and in the power of your spirit. For our friends who do not have faith in Christ, draw them to Christ. And to those languishing in their weakness, give them grace. We also cry out to you for those who are struggling to live their life in obedience to you. And we bring their names to you one by one. Grant them the power to resist temptation, the love to serve you with hope of the inheritance set for us in Christ. And we pray you'd give them courage. Bless them, O Lord, with the abundance of your grace so that their lives are overflowing and they may give to others. We entrust ourselves to you as we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us to nation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Thank you. 
We come now to our prayer for illumination as we prepare to hear God's word read and hear it preached. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have told us in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we pray now, we ask you now for that life, uh, for that nourishment as we hear your word read and preached. Uh, May it have its effect in our hearts so that we would reflect the love uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for each other and for their, their church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We begin our reading in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King... Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Our Psalter response is in the bulletin. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And strips the forest bare. And in his temple all pride and glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. 
We will hear next from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In our gospel reading in chapter 3 of John. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of the Lord.
Well, today is Trinity Sunday. I give you hints about these things in the bulletin at the top when it's uh, a particular day related to the church calendar. It's Trinity Sunday. Now, we know the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most essential doctrines of the Christian faith. When we start talking to uh, each other and you meet somebody who comes, you know, says they're a Christian, comes from another church, um, it, it might get around to the point where you want to know, do they believe that Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man? Um, do they believe that he's the one that died to defeat our sin, to overcome our sin so that we can be forgiven? Is he raised from the dead? Some of these are the basic doctrines that Christians hold around the world across denominations, and the Trinity is one of those. It's a doctrine that was worked out in the church as it listened to Scripture and wrestled with alternative beliefs about God that came along in the early church, and they're the famous um, uh, heretics they're called today, but Arius and others who came along and taught alternative ways of understanding Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so as the church had to wrestle with these things, and as it's listening to Scripture, Uh, they began to work out the doctrine of the Trinity. Who God has revealed himself to be never stops being at the forefront of the church's faith. Just because it was worked out some 17 or 1600 years ago doesn't mean that who God is and who he's revealed himself to be isn't still at the forefront of the church's faith and needs to be at the forefront of our faith. One reason for this is because whatever culture Christians live in, That culture powerfully plays on our imaginations. It plays on the way we think, on the way we see things, just the the way we view the world. And the culture always does that, and that's what cultures do. But sometimes this can distort our faith in God. So we need to always be um, keeping who God is according to Scripture and the church's testimony with its doctrine. We need to keep that in the forefront of our faith. Now, we live in a highly therapeutic and pragmatic-minded culture. It's all about how does it make us feel, how is it going to make me better, and how is it practical. That's sort of the, if I were to boil it down, that's, that's how I would say our culture tends to think. <coughs> Therefore, it's popular to believe that our doctrine about God must have some practical focus to it, and if it's not practical, it's useless. That's That's a cultural way of thinking. Theology, this is a quote I found, theology is valued not for what we learn from it about the being of God, but for how it helps us with better marriages, better ecclesiology, better understanding of the church, better political systems, and so on. That's what uh, some people believe and a lot of Christians believe. It's not really useful. It's not even good theology if it doesn't help us do something and help us work something out. However, good Christian theology that traces all the way back to the church fathers, you know, those leaders in the church back in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century, and on to Scripture, so through the church fathers, on to Scripture, good Christian theology reflects upon the beauty of God for his own sake. So, while Christian theology does have uh, an effect on our practice as Christians and how we live in the world and all of that, and our marriages and all, it does, But good Christian theology helps us reflect upon God and the beauty of God in himself. Carl Truman sums this up nicely. He says, Christians often praise God primarily for what he has done, what he does, and what he will do. But we should also praise him merely for who he is. 
Now, Trinity Sunday is a necessary balance to our celebration of the events of Jesus Christ. So we've been hearing uh, off and on throughout the church year about Christ's birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. And we also hear about the Trinity. And the Trinity is just simply focusing on God, who he is in himself. And why, and we worship him just as he is. Now, we Christians affirm that God is the triune God, and just to set that out there right away, it's, the doctrine is one God and three persons. Or we could say three subjective realities. I'll try to make the point later about person. The word person is a, a very important word, but it's often misunderstood because we have our own ideas about what person means. So the basic doctrine is one God and three persons, or three subjective relations. Now, immediately, people challenge our faith that doesn't make sense. One God and three persons. It doesn't make sense. That's not logical. But our faith is rooted in the unity of the Bible with the Old Testament teaching that in the Old Testament, right away, we begin to hear that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, Deuteronomy 6. The God is one. And the New Testament fills that out with the coming of Jesus Christ, fills it out with, his revela- with the revelation of Jesus Christ that this one God is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it, the unity of Scripture bears witness to this, and our faith is rooted in the unity of the Bible. Faith in the triune God is not contradictory. But it does go beyond our minds and understanding to the God who is greater than we are and transcendent. If something is greater than we are and greater than the whole creation and transcends above, is transcendent above it, don't you expect it's going to be different in some ways, whatever that is? Well, in this case, it's God. And so God is not going to be just like anything else we know. Now, faith in the triune God takes us beyond ourselves to the beauty and grandeur of God himself. And he's rightly to be worshipped purely for who he is, not just what he's done and gives to us. The triune God is beautiful. Now, I'm sure you've seen something beautiful before, right? I, I could probably ask each one of you. A piece of art, some beautiful piece of art, or a mountain view, that's what I always go for. Get to the top of the mountain, see the view. I love that. Or a sunrise, something like this. You've seen something beautiful. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity helps us see God's beauty. And when we see something beautiful today, it's our habit, living in the culture we do, to try and explain it. We try to figure out. We see the beautiful waterfall. So what do we do? Well, we start thinking. Not everyone does this, but some of us are inclined to think, how much water is going over that waterfall? Or how tall is the waterfall? Or what rivers are feeding or streams are feeding the waterfall? And so we want to figure it out. There's the beautiful thing in front of us, and we want to figure it out. Instead of thinking of the Trinity as an unsolvable logic puzzle that we've got to try and wrestle with and figure out and how do we make it fit together, reflect on it as showing us God's beauty. It's a different way of thinking about the Trinity. Not something that's, that's there to challenge us logically, but something that uh, faithfully bears witness to what Scripture teaches us and shows us God's beauty. So when you think of the Trinity, think of God's beauty. Now, when we see something beautiful, or when you see something beautiful, what do you do? 
you show it to other people, or you tell them about it if you can't really show it to them, uh, like a sunrise. Maybe it was there and then it's gone, but you can still tell them about it. So in our lesson from the Gospel of John, Jesus says to Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. And when the Apostle John wrote his Gospels, the Christians in that time and that place were being expelled from the synagogues. The Jewish leaders had decided by that time that the followers of Christ were not faithful Jews. Remember, Christianity did start out of, um, started with Jews. The first um, apostles were Jews that Jesus had called to himself. And so it started out of that. But the Jewish leaders decided that the followers of Christ were not faithful Jews. And the Christians' faith in Jesus Christ, according to these leaders, these Jewish leaders, made them blasphemers. And so, as far as the leaders in the synagogues were concerned, they terminated the Christians' membership in the synagogues. There was a major transition that happened towards the, in the second half of the first century. In effect, this was to say to the Christians, you are no longer one of us. Your belief is fatally flawed. You confess that Jesus is God. There's only one God, and you are against God, not for him, and therefore... There's the official pronunciation of excommunication. It was a major break between Christianity and Judaism. The Christian community was on trial for confessing that Jesus is God. John even uses the official Jewish word for expelling someone from the synagogue in chapter 9 of his gospel. When the Jewish rulers cast out, you'll find that word used in chapter 9, they cast out the blind man who had been healed by Jesus. That word cast out was an official word used when you expel someone or or excommunicate them. There's an allusion to it also in our reading, verse 18, our lesson from John 3. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now, we kind of read these sort of things. I mean, we're so far past what was happening in the first century. We read condemned, and we start thinking about other kinds of condemnation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But originally in the church... When this was happening, when the Jewish leaders were kicking out the Christians, that word condemned meant something very particular to what was going on there. The Christian church was being condemned. But notice what the Gospel of John says. It says those who believe in Jesus Christ are not condemned by God. So even though you're being condemned by the Jews and kicked out of the synagogues, it doesn't mean that God's condemning you. Actually, says the Gospel, those who condemn Jesus condemn themselves. So John, or Jesus, flips it around. Now, unfortunately, Christians have not always acted in love towards those who reject them. (coughs) Sometimes Christians have treated Jewish people horribly and made the excuse that they deserve it because they're condemned. That's been an age-old argument. They've been condemned by God, so we can kick them around. Well, that's not the way we follow Christ. Those who do the work of Christ, the work of God, are never to mistreat others, even if their condemnation of Jesus Christ is turned back on them by God. Even if God turns those who condemn his people and condemn Christ, he turns that condemnation back on them, that doesn't mean, that doesn't give us the responsibility to go around and, and kick people around because we think they've been, you know, they've been uh, given, that they're free to do what we want to them. So we're to respond to them with kindness. We're to give testimony to God's love for the world, sending his only son, Jesus Christ. And we can do that with kindness in how we treat those who reject us. 
We are to respond with love towards those who condemn Jesus and condemn us. Now, in John's day, not all the Jews condemned the Christians. And that comes out in our lesson in John 3. Some of them were willing to listen to what the followers of Jesus Christ had to say. So the Gospel of John casts Nicodemus as the representative of those Jews who were sympathetic to Jesus but didn't understand who he was. Nicodemus, who John tells us was the ruler of the Jews, so he's one of these rulers, does not really know who Jesus is when he comes to him in our text and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. As a confession goes, as a confession, Christian confession goes, a faith in Jesus, that's deficient. Okay, that's not good enough. <laughs> a true confession is more than God is with Jesus. It's more than Jesus is just a great teacher. <clears throat> Jesus is not just someone with God's approval on him, like he's walking around with one of those stamps on him that says this is qualified beef or whatever the product is. I know that's a terrible. (laughs) But with that stamp of a seal of approval, that's not what Jesus has on him, just like this is a good one. Okay, He's more than that. Nicodemus does not confess that Jesus is the unique Son of God who is one with the Father. And that's John's kind of language. That's what Jesus says in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, that Jesus is one, he's, he's with the Father, one with the Father. Nicodemus believes Jesus is someone special because of the signs he did. However, he doesn't really know who Jesus was, and he, he doesn't make a good Christian confession. He did not see, and this is part of it, he did not see the beauty of his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that comes out in the Gospel of John, the beauty of Jesus, the Son of God's relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this to him at the end of verse 11, but you did not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Heavenly things are beautiful things. Jesus, in our lesson from John, on the other hand, Nicodemus represents those who are not outright rejecting Jesus but really don't understand who he is. Jesus, on the other hand, in John, represents those who rightly bear witness that he is the unique Son of God sent by the Father for the salvation of the world. Now, Jesus is obviously sort of self-proclaiming when he says that. He's saying that about himself, but he's also representing all those who do say that who follow him. So Jesus stands with his followers and he says, we speak of what we know. And the we there is very important. Jesus is saying, it's not just me. It starts with him, but it's not just me. It's a we. We, and that includes you. We are those who believe Jesus is the Son of God who is one with the Father, who saves us from our sin and gives us new life. You see? Now, our witness then becomes a Trinitarian confession. Anyone who knows the history of theology can tell you that the doctrinal formula of the Trinity, the basic doctrinal definition of the Trinity, the one that says there's one God and three persons, didn't come into its own until the 4th century after Christ. In other words, in the 300s, that time period. That's when these great theologians, great doctors, they're called great teachers of the church like Athanasius, Augustine, Gregory of Nazianzus. I often think, man, it would be so cool to go back in time and be in that century where all these great 
thinkers and leaders are going on. But that was um, happening, that they were all active in that time, in that century. Not necessarily right at the same year, but throughout the century they're active, these great leaders in the church. It's also the time of the Council of Nicaea, which produced the confession we use in worship. You can see it right there in front of you, the Nicene Creed. It, it specifies that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God who's very God of very God, or truly God of truly God. And from this came the well-known formula that there's one God and three persons. So from this work that was being done in the church, as it listened to Scripture, as it's working against these alternative kinds of, um, of uh, ideas about who God is, there came this, um, this work that um, produced the Nicene Creed and the basic formula, the uh, basic doctrine that, that God is one God and three persons. Now later at the end of the 4th century, the Nicene Creed really focused on Jesus. The last part of it, the last paragraph you might say, was, came from what happened in 381, later in that century, at the Council of uh, Constantinople. That council was led by Gregory of Nazianzus, and he had the title, The Theologian. How would you like to have that title? The Theologian, not a theologian, not, you know, here's, here's a bunch of theologians, the theologian. Um, he presided over that council, and this council specified that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and is God, not just this thing or this power that's running around, um, but is God and is to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. So that's where you get the full kind of work out of the doctrine of the Trinity. None of, this, none of this had been worked out yet when the Gospel of John was written. You, you don't have that kind of statement in the Scripture. Um, but we, we, do not, we don't have these precise doctrinal formulations of the Trinity in the Bible. But we, what we can already see with the Scripture is the beauty of the triune God right there revealed through Jesus Christ. It, the doctrine may not be worked out in its precise detail that the church does. It's, it's bearing witness, but the beauty's there. It's there, and you heard it. You heard that beauty, or maybe we could say you saw that beauty with Isaiah and with what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus. It's there. The beauty is there. Now, what we have in Scripture, which laid the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, are the relationships between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These relationships are talked about very much, um, in, in, particularly in the New Testament, so in our readings this morning, the gospel lesson says, um, For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God, For God so loved the world he only gave his Son. But it's talking about the Father gave his Son. There you have a relationship, Father-Son. And Jesus is the unique Son of God who's begotten of the Father. Um, our reading from Romans speaks of the Spirit of God given to us and who assures us that we're children of God. But who gave the Spirit? Well, the, the Father sends the Spirit, and Jesus breathed the Spirit upon his disciples. You have relationships there between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Scripture instructs us in the relationships of these three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the relationship of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father is talked about. Jesus talks about that, and that's in the Gospel. That's talked about in the Scripture. The relationship of the Spirit to the Father and the Father to the Spirit is talked about, and the relationship of the Son to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Son. So these different uh, relationships are all talked about in the Scripture, even though it doesn't have this kind of uh, worked-out doctrinal statement like we get later in the church. It's a Trinitarian relationship. So here's the unique 
beauty of God. Trinitarian is unique. The Trinitarian relationship is the unique beauty of God. The glorious beauty of the Father with the eternally begotten Son and the eternally proceeding Spirit, inseparable in simple, indivisible unity. There's beauty in that. Don't, don't sit there and try to turn it into a logic puzzle, puzzle and rationalize it. Just look at the beauty of it. This God is unlike anything else we know. So why is it we're always trying to work out who God is in his own being with what we do know? I mean, okay, we need to use some analogies. They can be helpful, but they all fall apart. You know, um, St. Patrick's famous for the clover leaf, you know, and he used that three uh, leaves of the clover uh, leaf, and then that represents, you know, the Trinity. But there's a problem with any of these. So you have kind of the three parts, but you have more of a focus on the one there than you do the three. They don't, they don't have the same kind of relationship that the Trinity has. Um, or you take the egg. The egg's supposed to be another analogy. But you have the albumen, the yolk, um, and the shell. But they actually are three separate things. And when you cook, you can separate all three of them. Well, that's not the Trinity. You can't separate the Trinity like that. So those things can be helpful, but they don't, go, they don't really work out in the end. And we begin to lose, when we try to do that, we begin to lose the beauty of it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in eternity, wisdom, power, glory, majesty, holiness, and love. There's a simple unity there. You can't separate it out and say the Father's holy and the Son is um, you know, wise, wisdom. The whole being of God in simple unity is the, all those things, eternity, wisdom, power, glory, majesty, holiness, and love. And not like you could break all that down. In theology, we have to break it down and talk about it. But they're all united. So it's, if I could hyphenate all that together, eternal wisdom, power, glory, majesty, holiness, and love is one simple unity in God. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Although our minds cannot take him in, we know the triune God through Christ, and in reflecting on the triunity of God, we're reflecting on his beauty. So when we're thinking about and contemplating and reflecting on God in his trinity, we're reflecting on his beauty. God is more beautiful than anything else. And I hate to say that because I love to climb the mountains and look out. I don't hate to say that, but I, I, there are beautiful things in this world that we all recognize as very beautiful, and God in his triunity is more beautiful than any of those things. His beauty surpasses all other. So we're spellbound by a beautiful mountain covered in snow or a waterfall or a landscape or some intense color somewhere. My mom comes up from South Carolina, stays with us, and she's always amazed by the brilliant green that we get in the spring here. Because everything down in South Carolina, you know, the grass comes back and immediately it's brown because it gets so hot. Um, so she sees all that beautiful green and, and she loves it. And the perfect, if we see perfect proportions of a human body, like, like some sculpture or something, you know, we, we recognize there's beauty there. But these do not even compare to the beauty of the triune God. Contemplate him with scripture. I'm not talking about making it up in your own head. Contemplate him with scripture and the faithful doctrine of the church. Reflect upon God and your imagination will grow deeper and deeper in the radiance of the Trinity. But it's never contemplation just for its own sake. And there is a danger with that. You know, just, you know, just stuck on it and it for its own sake. 
Our contemplation of the triune God will provoke our witness of him to those who do not know him. When you see something beautiful, what do you do? Now, maybe you've done this, but usually, don't you go off and tell somebody about it? I saw the most amazing sunrise and the most beautiful waterfall. You know, here, let me go show you, you know. That, so it provokes us to want to bear witness to those who do not know this beautiful triune God. In John's day, many of the Jews rejected Jesus being the Son of God. You cannot be God, they said to Jesus. We are children of Abraham. We know the true God, and Jesus cannot be the true God. When Jesus said, before Abraham existed, I am, he said that in, uh, I think it was chapter 8, he says, uh, I am. He used the name, the holy name, that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush for himself. So he's making a very clear statement there, I am God. And the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, which means they understood what he was saying. The Jews did not understand who Jesus was, even though they understood what he was saying, but they were right about the seriousness of the matter. It's a critical question of Jesus' relationship to God. What is his relationship to God? And the testimony of Jesus' relationship to God runs through the Gospel of John. You might say that's one of the the major themes in the Gospel of John. What is Jesus' relationship to the Father, to God? And it runs throughout. Jesus Christ, at the very beginning, we're told, was the Word who was with God and was God. Our lesson says that he is God's one and only Son. John tells us the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he called God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus told his disciples to believe that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, talking about the unity So John's gospel is a monumental testimony to the unity of Jesus, the Son of God, with the Father. And we who follow Jesus Christ are to continue to make that testimony to the world, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that we speak of what we know, to use Jesus' words. And now we must speak of what we know where we are today. We don't need to go repeat it back 2,000 years ago to the Jews who were kicking the Christians out of the synagogue. That's done and gone. ignorance and denial of the triune God is all around us. And of course, it's easy to point at something like Unitarianism. You you hear it, right? Trinitarian, Unitarian. Unitarian says there is no trinity, there's just the oneness of God. And then you get all these, uh, it tries to lump in the religions and pull them together around this idea of one God, but it, it definitely wants to cut off any idea of a triune God. God is one, he's not in three persons. And we have our own version of that that grew up in this country. Americans love to create new things. We're going to be this new kind of nation, so we have something called transcendentalism. It's, called, uh, it's been called American's own, America's own religion. It was taught by Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, back in the 19th century. And it's still around. Um, transcendentalism says that God has been incorrectly perceived by all religions, including Christianity. So we, no religion has got it right, and so we need to boil it down and pull it together with this idea of just this transcendent one God. He's beyond our perception to know who he is. So what this means is that we need to look past this whole Trinitarian relationship thing, get, get over that, according to, these, to this Unitarianism, And just understand this one God who just sort of is there and holds everything together. This belief has been deeply influential in our country. Even people who don't call themselves Unitarians might definitely think this way. 
and it's there. The Unity Church is, is a big example of that. So is the Theosophical Society on Campbell Road in Royal Oak, not very far from here. The membership in these religious groups might be small, but their beliefs are widespread. It's just common. If anyone's going to talk about God, they tend to want to lump it together and make just this one God is not Trinitarian. There are other movements against the Trinitarian relationships of God, and some of these movements want to change God's triune name. They want to change his name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And running along with the sentiments of our culture is the attack that this is a male-dominated name. And you can hear that in it, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So it's male-dominated Trinitarian language, it is said, um, is uneven. It's unfair. It represents male power. It alienates women. You see, this is a culture's way of trying to, to interpret what's going on with our religion instead of listening, instead of listening to what's being said, because we're not trying to say that. That's not what the doctrine's saying, that men get to dominate women. It represents, uh, they, they would say it represents male power, alienates women. It talks about father-son instead of mother-child. Why can't we do that? The doctrine of the Trinity uses masculine words like begetting instead of words like birthing. And because it's masculine, the Orthodox Trinitarian definition is said to be rationalistic instead of emotive, instead of coming out of our intuition and feelings, which is supposedly more of a female way, although I seem to have a lot of that, um, more of a female way of, of expressing themselves, and rationalism supposedly more the male way, although I've met a lot of women who are very rational. So this is what men do. They rationalize things. That's the way the argument goes. Today there's a push to replace the old Trinitarian language with language that's more friendly, more open to all people, something like creator, redeemer, sanctifier. Now, those are perfectly good theological words, but they lack any definition of relationship. What's the relationship between creator and redeemer? What's the relationship of sanctifier to creator and redeemer? You see, they're generic words. They lack that personal relationship. So where is the beauty of the Trinity? The beauty is disappearing when you start using language like that. In Scripture, God reveals his beauty as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three personal relations. The Father is in relation to the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son is in relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in relationship to the Father and the Son. Three personal relations. It's analogous language, and it can't be pushed too far. I always worry about that a little bit. To speak of three persons, this is the problem with the word person in Western language. The word was the Latin was being used in all those debates in the early centuries of the church. The Latin church would use the word person. The Greek church did not. And so in using the word person, you could start to get the idea that the being of God is three separate individual gods. This is exactly what the Muslims accuse us of. So you have the father, person of the father. He's one. You have the person of the son. He's another person of the Holy Spirit. So the, our concept of person is individual, and that's pushing it too far. That's missing the point. The way it was being used originally is relations, three relations that are personal relations. So our language, our human language that God uses to reveal himself does have its limits, but it is the language of Scripture that God uses to make himself known to us. If he didn't use that, what would he use? So one of the things that God wants us to know about himself is his Trinitarian relations. So listen to the Bible. God is the holy, transcendent God who spoke to Isaiah and is worshipped by Isaiah. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And later in Isaiah, the same prophet, the holy God, is called Father. You are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. So God is our Redeemer and he's our Father. And the Gospel of John says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. God expresses his love for us, you see, in this Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. It comes out of that relationship. And God sent the Spirit to us so that we would cry out to him, Abba, Father, that's in our Romans uh, reading. God has a relationship with us. Why? Because he's a God with personal relations. A God who does not have personal relations within his very own being, in other words, can't love. You, you can't love when you're a hermit, when you're all by yourself. And at least you can't love others. And you also would lack the ability to to have that, that love that goes forth from you to include others, and that's us. So it's because God is a God with personal relations that we can be loved by God. Now, when it comes to, when it comes to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, we can feel inadequate, especially when we're trying to explain it to someone else. We can try to answer their questions, but somehow feel like we're coming up short. The doctrine of the Trinity can sound very stiff if you just rattle it off. One God and three persons, that can sound kind of stiff like an old piece of leather. Unless we see it expressing the beauty of God. You see, when you begin to see it expressing that, then you have, you're using that kind of language, but you're trying to help them see something beautiful. Now, you may not know how to talk about the ins and outs of the doctrine of the Trinity very well. And it's, it can be much... It's, it's, there's not, you know, much more to say about it than just one God and three persons. However, you do know how to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because that's personal, you see. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and you know how to talk about that. Why? Because you've heard the Scripture and because God's love abides in you by the Holy Spirit. So you can talk about that. The Father loves the Son and His Son sent his son for you. The spirit bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. Now, we may not be able to, to perfectly work that out in some logical, rationalistic way in terms of relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but that's what we have going on with, with us, each one of us. And so we're able to talk about that, about God, the spirit, sharing in the love of the Father and the Son and, being, and pouring that love into our hearts. So when you talk like this, you see, and talk about those personal relations and how you've been drawn into that relation, you're, you're using Trinitarian language. You're starting to talk about the Trinity and the beauty of the Trinity. God is not some impersonal being. Have you seen those bumper stickers with the symbols of all the different religions that says, get along? And those little symbols and all, it's very impersonal. It's very impersonal. The Gospel of John is so much more wonderful because it expresses that personal relation of God. He's deeply personal and he's created a relationship with you by sending the Son into the world and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Reflect with the church on the beauty of the triune God. Don't just leave it at some rational, logical way of thinking. It, it does involve that. It does involve thinking and using words and, and learning how to express the doctrine. But there's also the beauty Reflect with the church on the beauty of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and speak of what you know. Give testimony to the triune God because the world does not know and doesn't see God as beautiful. Let us pray. 
Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servants grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity of you, the, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship. Bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we thank you and praise you that you have made your beauty known to us through Christ. So we praise you and give you thanks. And we continue to always want to reflect upon you in our worship and in our lives. We pray this would be so. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith. Notice the paragraphs that begins with the Father, focuses then on the Son, and finally the Holy Spirit. It's a good Trinitarian creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 100, Holy, Holy, Holy.
7 in Revelation, we hear this, and he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty thunder peals, crying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. One of the interesting interesting things about some of these visions in Revelation, and especially uh, chapter 4 and 5 and then at the end of Revelation, is that the throne, it's, it's God seated on the throne and the Lamb is seated there and, and it's, it, it just begins to befuddle us because you have the Lamb and God seated on the throne and it, it's, it's, it's strange, but it's one throne with God and the Lamb seated together and there you begin to see the unity of God um, that's being... Uh, set forth for us. We offer our thanksgiving to the Lord with confidence in the promise of Christ who said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So the apostle reminds the church's functions basically as the reminder of the institution of the supper. But the apostle reminds the church in 1 Corinthians, the cup of blessing which we bless is not a communion in the blood of Christ. Of course it is, that's what he's saying. The bread which we break is not a communion in the body of Christ. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members who belong to a Christian church. You are invited and welcome to come to this table. Now, as you accept this gracious invitation, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin and endeavoring with all your heart to obey Him, and that you are seeking to live with love and concern and concern for your fellow Christians with whom you'll be eating and drinking. Coming to the Lord's table, we cannot harbor grudges or unforgiveness towards each other. We must seek to put those to rest as quickly as we can. To do this incurs the displeasure of the Lord, to harbor those things and to bear grudges and to be unforgiving. Come and affirm your love for one another in Jesus Christ and your love for Him. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for His salvation and new life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right and good and a joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image, and you breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity. You made covenant to be our one and only Lord and spoke to us through your prophets. And so with your people on earth and all the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. Your Spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. And in his ministry, he healed the sick and fed the hungry and freed people from the power of the devil, and he ate with sinners. By the baptism of the suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. 
And when the Lord Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice. Of course, in union with Christ's offering for us, never could we offer such a thing of our own. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith with the church that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. So as we come to this meal with faith, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, with this bread and this cup, our eating and drinking may be a communion in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ and one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and your Holy Church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And we say and give our thanks together. We say with one voice, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus says, the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me will live because of me. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup, and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And live and reign in the perfect unity of love in your being. Hold us firm in this faith that we may know you in all your ways and evermore rejoice in your eternal glory, who are three persons, yet one God, now and forever. Amen. Final hymn is a good Trinitarian hymn. It's the insert, Lights Abode, Celestial Salem.
Spirit be upon you always, now and forever. Amen. Just, I think, really a few quick announcements. Just a, first off, a reminder that our Bible study, again, will be on Thursday night here at the church. Um, this Lord's Day, we're going to be completing our study on the Reformed tradition. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Reformed uh, eschatology or Reformed view of end things. Um, that will be uh, at uh, quarter two. We'll start that. Uh, and next week... We'll initiate a new study uh, on uh, the Christ- John Calvin's view of the Christian life, um, which uh, I've been reading through the book on this, and it's just, it's wonderful, and I'm really looking forward to um, going through this study, and, and uh, Elder Kelly will be uh, kicking us off next week on that one with, re- with the idea of that we are not our own. And that's an important concept. It actually sets the premise for the whole book, just in terms of understanding how we live. We are not our own. So uh, I know you'll be looking forward to that. Um, and that's it by way of announcement. George. Yes. Um, I announced last week, last Sunday, that Scott was to, um, my brother Scott was to have an appointment the next day on Monday to make a decision about going for the treatment of his cancer, but he wasn't even able to make the trip. So that kind of spoke volumes. And they talked to their oncologist, things said rapidly evolved into hospice care, um, which at this point will allow him to be home. The oncologist said, I mean, the, the cancer was already overtaking the treatment, but without any stops, he said it was going to move quickly. So, Tammy and I are going to go visit him tonight. Um, they have amazing peace. I talked to Becky. They're resting in the timing of God. Um, as God's made it clear, they've changed their preparations. And so, it's, um, again, I talked to Terry Benjamin, uh, who has no Scott. Uh, I, I spoke to him a couple days ago. Um, Terry reflected what a beautiful testimony Scott and Becky have had. And that's really the case. And so, praise the Lord for that. Uh, so, pray for that. Uh, for those that are um, remote, uh, George shared that um, Scott, uh, his brother, his cancer has uh, uh, just the, the treatment options aren't um, effective and uh, he'll be moving into, he has moved into hospice. Um, and so uh, just please do keep 
Scott and Becky in your prayers. So, and and George and Tammy as well, of course. So, uh, with that, we'll go ahead and uh, dismiss. Thank you.